After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples who were mourning his death. He knew how sad they were, and yet instead of giving them the obvious proofs of showing his resurrected body, Jesus spent his time with them discussing the scriptures that foretold his suffering, death, and resurrection. Why did Jesus choose to teach about his mission in this way rather than the more obvious way? And what were the scriptures that he used to teach about, as the book of Luke describes, the things concerning himself? I'm Mark Holt, and this is a Gospel Doctrine special episode. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. So glad you're joining us for our special episode. If you're new to the show, uh, special episodes are, are things that I do because of a personal preference that are not part of the Come Follow Me curriculum. So they're additional lessons that I choose to add on because of some interest in, in, in my own life or in my own mind. In this case, I wanted to talk about the events of Luke 24, where Jesus appears to his disciples and opens to them the scriptures. Uh, because this this interchange, this exchange that Jesus has with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, this account, for years was my favorite scripture. And to me, it's always been really profound, and I wanted to deepen my understanding of it, and I thought that there might be some interest among my listeners. Incidentally, if you're in the United States, happy Independence Day. Uh, for those of you outside the United States, this for us is a very important holiday. We generally spend it with family and friends, and then at nighttime we enjoy watching fireworks displays that remind us of the American Revolution. If you're in the UK, we still love you, and uh, and obviously everywhere else in the world, we, we share a common love of Jesus Christ, so welcome. Uh, and so let's. I'm going to start by reading in, in Luke 24, reading this account of what happens. So it starts in verse 13. We're in Luke 24, verse 13. By the way, you may want to pause. If you're if you're somewhere listening at home, if you're not listening to this on the road, you may want to pause and get some, uh, get a pen and get some paper. I'm going to be going fast through scriptures, as you might imagine. And if you want to know what these scriptures are later, you might want to write them all down. I'm just going to give you reference after reference after reference. So it's going to be rapid fire. That's the nature of this lesson. And, uh, I will try, well, I will eventually, <laughs> I've promised this a few times, I will eventually put my notes up online. I'll just scan the notes that I handwrite. Um, and so these will eventually go up, but I don't know when. So if you want if you want access to these after you're done listening, you might want to take notes. So starting in Luke 24 with verse 13, behold, two of them, these are the these are two of the disciples of Jesus. Two of them went that same day. This is this is Easter Sunday. The day after Jesus is risen, he's already appeared to his disciple, to, um, sorry, his female disciples at the tomb, and there are rumors that he's risen, but nobody knows what to believe. Nobody's really t- giving credence to the words of Mary Magdalene and the others who've seen him. Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs, or a little over seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden, 
that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? So Jesus could tell from even from a distance that they were mournful as they walked. So it doesn't describe that uh, when it says they talked together of all these things that had happened and they were reasoning. They were communing together and reasoning, but it doesn't describe them as being mournful. We learn that from Jesus' words. One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day, since these things were done. So when they say, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, what they're saying is, we thought he was the Messiah. And now we know, because he's dead, we know that he's not. Uh, Verse 22, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even so, as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So when, when you hear Christ in the New Testament, it's the same as Messiah in the Old Testament, uh, which, which, which I've mentioned a few times. Ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things? In other words, don't you know that the Messiah was prophesied not only to rule Israel, but to but to die and then to enter into his glory. So Jesus is saying, it's clear from the scriptures right now, he's already saying, um, when he says, you're slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken, shouldn't the Messiah, isn't it, isn't it obvious that he had to go through these things? He's saying that it's plain from the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what, what they knew as the scriptures, it's plain from the scriptures that all these things had to happen. So in verse 27 is sort of the crux of our, the, the inspiration of our lesson t- today, our special episode. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So that's, uh, if you recognize the words in this verse, abide with us, tis eventide. So there's a, uh, a popular English hymn that gets its title from this verse, for the day is far spent. And that also give, that phrase also is the, uh, is, gives, its, uh, gives a title to one of our hymns. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass that as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? So the thing that has always struck me about this passage is that Jesus could, as I mentioned in the introduction, he could have easily appeared to them in glory, shown to them the marks in his hands, and just simply his face and the fact that he was alive, they would have seen that he was the risen Lord. And then he could have said, this was always necessary for me to do. I am the Messiah, and I was always going to rise from the dead, and here I am. 
that's the best proof of all, and they would have instantly believed it for sure, and yet Jesus chose to, to testify of himself in this way. And why is that? And what are the proofs that he gave? And why was it so powerful? So this gives us one clue. He said, did not, these, uh, these two men say to each other, did not our heart burn within us? So they, they recognized at the end of the day, they realized they'd been feeling the Holy Ghost the whole day. As long as Jesus had been talking to them, they had known what he was saying was true. And he was speaking about the scriptures that they knew well. He was showing them that they already knew. So that's something that he could not have done by appearing to them, was to show them that they already knew what would happen, right? This is Jesus showing them things they'd learned from childhood and saying, look at all the scriptures that you love and that you have studied. They show you that these things are true. That's, a, that's one reason why it's more powerful to teach from the scriptures than for him to personally appear is because it's only in that way he can, he can testify of things they already know and they can become aware that the Spirit can confirm these these understandings that have been growing in them for some time. It's like a, a root. All of a sudden, the first shoot appears, but that, that little leaf that shows above ground is an indication that roots have been spreading for some time underground. And that's what Jesus accomplished by making reference to scriptures that they knew and loved. And then, of course, the, the Holy Ghost is what confirms this to them as as we've seen in other places in the scriptures, to, what comes to mind to me is uh, Laman and Lemuel outside of Jerusalem when they're sent back to get the plates. They have a vision of an angel. And as soon as the angel departs, they immediately start murmuring again. The angel says, you're going to get, go back and try one more time for the, for the brass plates and you're going to get them this time. And as soon as the angel leaves, they start murmuring and say, uh, there's no way I can do that. I don't know how it would be done. Laban will kill or Laban will kill us. And so a manifestation of a heavenly being can be if your heart is not prepared can be no more convincing than somebody te- a person telling you something. But the Holy Ghost teaching you and having confirmed and put a capstone let's say put upon a lifetime worth of study in the scriptures can instantly convince you. Uh, incidentally, I was it occurred to me, this may or may not be true, or actually just it's just a matter of viewpoint, but it occurred to me that these two men, this conversation, this journey that Jesus had, is the birth of Christianity as a religion. And these two men are the first two Christians. And the reason I say that is they're the first to get a scriptural basis and deepening and understanding into the risen Lord, not just Jesus Christ and his teachings about the kingdom, but also his teachings about the resurrection and the fact that it was testified to and borne witness of for thousands of years. Jesus gives them his rationale, and at that moment, Christianity was born. Uh, it's not necessarily true or not true. It's an opinion, but uh, it's an interesting way of looking at this exchange. So they run back, obviously, they run back to tell the apostles, and as soon as they're done relating their story, they say, we saw Jesus, he's alive, then the uh, the apostles are obviously incredulous. We don't know who else is in this room, and I'll and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But 
um, then Jesus is in the midst of them. And he repeats this experience, except this time he does show himself to them first. And he says, here I am. Look at me. You can recognize me. You can see the, my wounds in my hands and in my side. And he eats with them to show that he's physical, that he has a corporeal presence. And then he, then he does the same thing. So now we're still in Luke 24. Uh, but after he's done eating, we're in verse 44. He said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things much must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And I mentioned last in last week's les- lesson, the Hebrew scriptures are split into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Jesus makes reference to all three here. So he's showing that in every aspect of the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets that have been inspired to write these scriptures have written about the Messiah and about Christ. And, uh, and about, I should say, about the Messiah and about Jesus. He, they've tied him together and tied him as not only the Messiah, but also the Savior of the world and as the God of Israel. Um, and, the, and he said unto them, thus, oh, then, we're now in verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. In other words, you're witnesses of all the fulfillment that I created to all these scriptures during my lifetime. And uh, this actually, I'm going to take something a little bit out of order. So the the book of Isaiah, if you were to, if you were to distill that book to a a one-paragraph description, you would say that Isaiah is showing to Israel how God is going to keep his covenants, the glorious. First of all, he's going to uh, he's going to pronounce judgment upon Israel for the ways in which they have departed from their covenants, but then he's giving hope to Israel that God will eventually keep all of these covenants. And what covenants are those? The Davidic covenant in which God promised that a Messiah would come through David's line. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where that's originally given. It's repeated a couple of different places. The Mosaic Covenant, in which God promises he's going to lead Israel in obedience and lead them into the land of Canaan, and that's in Exodus 19. And then all the way back to the Abrahamic Covenant, which is originally given in Genesis 12, but then again in, affirmed in Genesis 15. And the Abrahamic covenant, among other things, is that God's blessing of salvation would flow from Israel to all nations, right? In in thy seed shall all the people of the world be blessed, God promises to Abraham. And so the promise of God to Abraham is that through Abraham's seed, every person in this world eventually would be blessed and and led to salvation. God's blessing and salvation would flow from Israel outward. And that's one of the, to me, that is one of the scriptures that Christ is talking about here when he says uh, in verse 47 of Luke 24, repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So he's, he's telling them, I need you now to enact the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which is that from Abraham's seed shall all the children of the earth be blessed. So we're going to start here. We're going to start with what I've accomplished during my lifetime in talking just to the 
children of Israel, and we're going now to spread this word, this gospel, this salvation to everyone. They don't quite understand this. If, uh, as we'll discover in the book of Acts, they don't quite understand that it's their job to go to the Gentiles as well. They, they think it's their job to go to the Jews that live among the Gentiles or who live in, in Gentile nations, right? When Jesus says, among all nations, they think, oh, we'll go talk to our brethren, our co-religionists in other countries, but not, we're going to convert people who were never Jews. And that, that understanding does come. It comes later, and it's described in the book of Acts. But Christ is clearly telling them, I'm going, you're witnessing the fulfillment. I'm going to fulfill every covenant that was made to Israel in the Old Testament. So Christ again has given them the teaching from the scriptures. And if, uh, and if there was an early glimpse of Christianity on the road to Emmaus, then here is the actual real birth of Christianity, is, is Christ sitting down with his disciples and saying, you're not only witnesses of, of a prophet, of a Hebrew prophet, teaching about the kingdom of God. You're not only witnesses of the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews who's going to bring about redemption, but you are also the, the first messengers of an entirely new way of looking at the world and of experiencing God. And God is, was always destined to die and be reborn, and here I am. So take this message now. It's been modified. Even from a few days ago, the message that they would have preached would have been that God is among you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what, this is the very message Christ gave them, right? He sent them out on their missions and he said, tell everyone the kingdom of God is at hand. Now their message will be that Christ died and has been resurrected for you. And that is a totally different message, not totally, but it's a vastly different message. And so... Jesus is now saying, here are, here are the early indications of all of these things that you have known all along. And once again, he gives them the message that they, they have always known these things, or they have long known these things. And so he confirms their understanding in the scriptures by showing them a new interpretation of things they've already accepted. And in that way, understanding from the scriptures is more powerful than even a vision. And because of Understanding the scriptures, increased understanding of the scriptures can go back in time and can show us that during the course of our lives, we've always been learning and understanding these things and that the blessings have grown gradually. And that's something that can't be done in one moment, no matter how, how powerful an experience is. So who is present in this room? Well, we don't know, but it does say that the, the apostles are there. So uh, and we get an indication that Thomas was not there. So we know that, that that 10 of the apostles were there. But might there have been some other people present? And why is it important? The, the only reason I ask the question is, later on in the book of Acts, when Peter, one of the times when he's released from prison, where does he go? He goes to what's called an upper room, at the home of John, who's surnamed Mark. And John Mark is the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and that is the first of the Gospels. So, so Mark was one of the disciples of Jesus who knew Jesus while he was alive. And it may be, some, some scholars have guessed or have hypothesized that 
Mark was the person to whom Jesus had arranged, or to whom he sent the disciples, with whom he'd arranged to have the Last Supper. In other words, he was the provider of the upper room, and he'd made all things for the supper ready. So he was one of those disciples that Jesus had had known that the dis, uh, that the disciples had not known. The other disciples had been unaware of, and his home would have been close to if because it's near Mount Zion, and because Peter went there first, it would have been close to the home of Caiaphas and uh, Annas, Annas, the priest, the high priests. This would have been close to the place where Jesus had undergone his trial, and therefore. Um, that's why Peter would have run there, and that's where we know the Last Supper occurred. So there's, to me, it seems sort of likely that this would have been where the, the apostles were gathering. So why is that important? Because if Mark was present, that means that the scriptures that Mark talks about Jesus fulfilling in his gospel, he heard directly from Jesus. So as we, as we begin to try to figure out what scriptures was Jesus talking about, we don't, we don't have to go unarmed and um, we don't have to start fresh in the Old Testament and read it from the beginning and look for anything that might pertain to Christ. The first thing we're going to do is say, what did the people that were present in that room, what scriptures did they talk about after this event? And so we look through the Gospels and... Uh, obviously, none of the Gospels had been written at this point because they're still occurring. We're still in the middle of the book of Luke, but um, the, the ascension has not occurred yet. It, it would be years before these, the Gospels would be compiled in their present form. And though the early journals that the Gospels were based on may have already, some of them, been written, um, for sure all of these accounts were not yet complete. And so the, the writers of the Gospels, the evangelists, we know that two of them were present. Matthew and John were two of these apostles of Jesus, and Mark may have also been present. And so when we, and, and Luke is the one who's writing about this event, right? So he, we know from the first chapter of Luke that he, Luke talked to eyewitnesses. So Luke would have talked to as many of these people as were still alive when he did his work. For sure, Mark was alive, and so Luke would have gone and talked to Mark and perhaps Matthew and John. And so this is where this is why we can understand from the Gospels themselves that these men may have gone forth and later written about the scriptures that Jesus taught them about on, on this day. Secondly, we can also look in the book of Acts. So the disciples went out into the world, and they taught from the scriptures, and in many places we have their their messages and their lessons transcribed faithfully, and we can know what scriptures they were teaching from to testify of Jesus. Now, what scriptures would you use if you were called as a missionary to go out into the world and teach about the risen Lord if it, to the Jews? If you had had Jesus teach you, a Jew, from your scriptures about the risen Lord, you would use those same scriptures. So it seems pretty reasonable to assume that those scriptures that are used by the, by the disciples, by the missionaries in the book of Acts, would be those same scriptures, or in many cases the same scriptures, that Jesus used to testify of his role. So that's a pretty good assumption, and we're going to talk about what those scriptures are. And then secondly, what scriptures would you use if you were to write an account of the life of Jesus if there were prophesi- prophecies in the Old Testament that applied to Je- the life of Jesus As you relate those events, you're going to pull in, if if you later became aware that the prophecy applied to that event, 
you're going to pull that in, you're going to mention it. So anytime, and, and one of the ways in which I prepared for this lesson, I just did a search in my gospel library app for the word fulfilled, because so many times in the in the King James Version, it said, and thus that it might be fulfilled what was written by the prophet when he said, et cetera, et cetera. And so I looked for the word fulfilled, and surprise, surprise, the it occurs most commonly in the books of Matthew and John, the two men we know were present in this room with Jesus as he teaches them from the scriptures. So before we go any farther, I want to say, uh, I want to recommend a book to you. And if you've been with me since I taught the Old Testament, I used this book quite frequently in my Old Testament lessons. But this book is called The Hidden Christ. It's by James Farrell, and it is basically discussing how Christ is so powerfully testified and unmistakably testified of in the Old Testament. So, and that brings up the other question, which is if there are so many scriptures that talk about the, the, the life and mission and death and resurrection of Christ, then why didn't all the Jews understand that? And so the hidden Christ tells you that. It's, Christ is present in the Old Testament. He's all over the place, and yet he's also hidden. So it, it requires a little bit of knowledge of the life of Jesus, and it requires, it requires a little bit of faith. Uh, and if it didn't require any faith, then there would be no Jews today, right? Jews would not exist if it was clear and plain and unmistakable and undeniable in the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, then there could be no one who didn't believe that. And Jews do not believe that, right? Jews believe in the Old Testament, and yet they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. So therefore, obviously, it's hidden. And so the fact that Christ is talking about the, the, the many scriptures which, which testify of him should not be taken that you cannot interpret these scriptures in any other way. In fact, in almost all of the scriptures that we'll look at, there is some other interpretation. And the other thing we can, the other lesson we can take from this is um, you read in the title page to the Book of Mormon that it is written unto the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. But what book did Jesus use when he wanted to convince Jews that he was the Christ? He used the Old Testament. So we have Jesus' own testimony that the Old Testament is a powerful testimony that he is the Christ, and perhaps the most, if not one of the most powerful ways of convincing a Jew that he is the Christ. So that I recommend this book very highly. I, I absolutely love it, and it is, it is one of the reasons why I love the Old Testament. The hidden, it's called The Hidden Christ. So pick that up and read that book. You'll, you'll be glad you did. Um, before we go into any specific scriptures, I also wanted to talk about just general themes that run throughout the Old Testament that make it that once you understand the life of Christ and the mission of Christ, then they sort of echo to you from the Old Testament. And so what are the types or the images or the similarities of Christ that we find in the Old Testament? And I didn't put these in any particular order, but I just listed them off the top of my head. The design of the tabernacle and the Old Testament temple. Right, this is uh, the the design. As you have the altar on the outside, and then you have the holy place and the holy of holies. This echoes the mission of Christ as He leads man back to God. the The sacrificial offerings that are made 
at the altar in the temple and inside the holy place. Those are echoes of Jesus Christ and his mission and his suffering. The sacrifice of Isaac is an obvious one. So Abraham was commanded to, to sacrifice his only son. Uh, and then a proxy showed up at the last minute. A ram was caught in a thicket, and Abraham uh, and Isaac did not have to be suffered uh, or, or sacrificed. And so, therefore, um, both Isaac and the ram are types of Christ found in the Old Testament. The lives of the prophets Joseph and Moses they echo Christ in many important ways and in different ways. So Joseph was sold into Egypt, and this was uh, a type of the death of Christ and what Joseph was later able to do to his brethren do for his brethren was was sort of a powerful symbol of the atonement of Christ and Moses though the parallels between Moses and Christ are so numerous um, I would just point you back we have an entire podcast on um, the, the Exodus, the early chapters of the book of Exodus. So go back into last year's podcast if you're interested in that. But the lives of Joseph and Moses are two powerful types of Christ. And then the history of Israel itself. So Matthew actually makes this point early in the Gospel of Matthew. And I made the point uh, in our early podcast this year, which was Matthew draws the parallel between Christ and the people of Israel, first by showing that what, what does Jesus do uh, to initialize or to, to set off his ministry? He goes and is baptized in the River Jordan. He passes through the waters, and then he spends 40 days in the wilderness where Israel spent 40 years, where he's tempted of, of Satan. And then he returns, and um, he passes again through Jordan. There are, there are many parallels that I discussed in which Christ is shown to be the, the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Now, so many of the scriptures that pertain to Christ in the Old Testament, the Jews would today of today and of Christ's day understood them to apply to the Israelite people as a whole. For example, the most powerful and the most common chapter that we'll discuss is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah chapter 53 a Jew would say this: the suffering servant in this chapter is the nation of Israel because uh, Israel has suffered all of these things from its neighbors, and eventually those, uh, those neighbors will realize that Israel has been suffering them on their behalf. So that is how they understand that, even though it's so clearly and unmistakably about Jesus to us. To them, they understand it to be about Israel. And the truth is, they're both right. It's absolutely true that it's about Israel, and Israel is the suffering servant in one sense, but it's more uh, more proper to say that, that, obviously, that Jesus is the suffering servant. And you find, you find uh, references to Isaiah chapter 53 in more than one gospel and also in the book of Acts. The, the disciples are very clear and unequivocal in testifying that this chapter applies to Christ in his atonement. Uh, in fact, in our most recent conference, the one episode that sticks out is this Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in his, uh, in his chariot, and Philip is, is inspired to, to run alongside him. And this is uh, in Acts 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. And Philip sees that or hears him reading Isaiah and then he he says you know what what's the problem and he says well I'm reading these verses and I don't have anyone to explain it to me and so then Philip 
is filled with the Holy Ghost and he preaches unto him Jesus. And then he's baptized from, from re- learning about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. He's baptized that day. Uh, and so that's a powerful testimony that all of the disciples knew that Isaiah 53 applied to Jesus. But a Jew would say Isaiah 53 applies to Israel. And so Matthew makes that parallel known that Jesus and Israel have so many things in common. They, they, the path of Jesus's life echoes the history of the nation of Israel and the, and the exile. This is one of the reasons that I'm spending so much time on this because the exile of Israel, the conquering of Israel by Assyria and then later by Babylon is a symbol of the death of Christ. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says to his disciples, it behooveth Christ to suffer these things because he is the fulfillment of all of the promises made to Israel, including the judgments placed on them. He has to take those judgments upon himself. And so in the way that they were exiled, in the same way, he was cut off from among his people, and he was cut off from the land of the living. In the way that Israel was exiled, Jesus was killed. So uh, that's another type of Christ. Um, one, of the mo- one of the most poignant stories, even though it's a very little-known story, is the this episode of Abigail with David. And um, Abigail rushes out because her husband has been denying to David the support that he needs for his men. He's, his men were protecting uh, Abigail's husband's farm and lands from all of their enemies. And, and then he won't send out any sus- sustenance when it's uh, requested of him. And so David's angry. He's going to come in and punish them. And Abigail runs out and she takes upon herself the guilt for someone else's actions. This is one of the most powerful testimonies of Christ in the Old Testament. It's a very little known story, very powerful. I spent some time talking about it last year. The miracles of Elijah and Elisha and the the missions of these two prophets are very presaging of Jesus Christ. And and, uh, also David. So Christ is in many places called the new David or the son of David. So the promises made to David and David's early life, obviously before he uh, made his terrible mistake with Bathsheba and Uriah, David is a type of Christ as well. So those are just some of the many testimonies, many broad, you might say, you can't point to a specific verse, but they're, they're broad similarities in the Old Testament that have an echo in the life and the mission and the ministry of Christ. And, and as I said, that's just some of them. There are many more. So now let's talk about specific verses. And uh, we'll start in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. But this is, this is me just going through, and there are more that you could find. This is me going through and saying, where does it say that, um, that, that thus it was fulfilled in the Scriptures? And as I was reading these, I, I kind of thought, uh, well, let me, let me go back a little further. When I was learning to, when I was studying how to write and uh, how to write novels and how to write stories, one of my teachers in, in a writing class that I took, he said, you know, if, if you've ever seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, at one point Bill and Ted are locked in jail, but they have a time machine. And they say, you know what, in order to get out of here, because um, Ted's dad is a is a police chief and he's he's locked them away and he said you you, you guys are going to be separated and Ted you're going to military school so the the story of Bill and Ted is these two teenagers who get a time machine and uh, they say well we've got a time machine all we have to do is remember to to steal the keys you know 
Later on, after this is all over, we'll go back in time, we'll steal the keys, and then we'll put them uh, right behind this plant. And they look behind the plant, and there are the keys. And so uh, the point is, they have they just have to later on remember to put something back where it belongs. And so as the and, our, and my writing teacher said, if you are writing a story about a character, and later on you learn something new about the character that applies to the past, you just say, remember to put the keys behind the plant. Meaning... All you have to do is you just write the story now as if that character had already undergone the the understanding or already gained the understanding that you need them to have. And then remember to put that back in the story earlier. And so that's what the gospel writers have done. They've, they've later on, they've gained all this insight into the life of Jesus because Jesus teaches them about the scriptures that pertain to him. And they say, oh, and so then they go back later and they put it all in. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, just remember to put those keys behind the plant. And, uh, so that's my little, now you know I'm a child of the 80s, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But um, so here we are in Matthew, and it starts out right in Matthew chapter 1. Um, in verse 22 and 23, Matthew says, Thus, thus the, the scriptures fulfilled, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this is, uh, Isaiah was called in Isaiah 7, chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah was called to talk to one of the evil kings of Israel or I'm sorry, of Judah, who was riding out to war with Israel and with uh, the other surrounding nations. And he's saying, ask me a sign and God will give it unto you. And he says, I'm not going to tempt God. And, and Isaiah says, all right, I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And he, and he gives other prophecies about Jesus that would be fulfilled. Um, then in Matthew 2, chapter 2, 17, when the, child, when the babies are killed in Bethlehem, Matthew says, thus it was fulfilled as spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, that there was a voice heard in the, in the wilderness, Rama. In Rama was a voice heard, Rachel weeping for her children, which were not. And so if you read that verse, you understand that Rachel now, Jacob, if you remember, was renamed Israel. He was the father of the 12 tribes, and Rachel was the mother. And so, in other words, the, the children of Israel were destroyed. And one, this is one of the powerful parallels between Israel and Jesus is that one fulfillment of this scripture was, it was actually Jeremiah talking about the past. He was talking about the the children that were slaughtered by Pharaoh. And the those children are a parallel to the children that were slaughtered in Bethlehem. So Pharaoh tried to reduce the number of Jews by killing children the same way that Herod tried to kill the king of the Jews by killing children in Bethlehem. Uh, and, and both of those are fulfillments of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. One in the past for Jeremiah and one in the future. In Matthew 2, 15, when uh, Jesus is returning from, from, from Egypt, um, Matthew says, thus is it fulfilled, out of Egypt have I called my son. And that is a reference to Hosea 11, 1. And so, um, again, a parallel between Jesus and Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my, my son. For Hosea, that was in the past, and Jesus was in the future. And this is one, and yet, and, and Matthew does this very deliberately. He shows the ways in which Jesus' life parallels uh, Israel's the history. In, again, in Matthew 2, this time verse 23, Thus it was fulfilled that he should be called a Nazarene. Now this is a controversial f- 
fulfillment because there is nowhere in the Old Testament where it actually talks about the village of Nazareth. It probably didn't exist in Old Testament times, this village. And yet the word that gives uh, the root word of Nazareth is Netzer, which is a branch. So most scholars would agree that what Matthew was talking about was Isaiah 11.1, in which uh, Isaiah says, a rod shall grow out of Jesse, uh, the root of Jesse, and a branch out of David, right? And then later, many times in Zechariah and other places, the Messiah is called the branch. And that the root of this, again, is Netzer. And so when Jesus is called a Nazarene, now, now understand a Nazarite is somebody in the Old Testament, some, somebody like Samuel or Samson who makes a vow not to cut his hair, not to drink water, um, any alcohol, and this is a lifelong vow. Those words are not as closely related in Hebrew as they are in English. So this is not saying that Jesus would be a Nazarite. It's saying that Jesus would be a branch, possibly, right? This is one possible interpretation. This is certainly the interpretation that Matthew was taking. Uh, I shouldn't say certainly. It's almost certainly the interpretation that Matthew was taking, that it was, a, it was prophesied that Jesus would be the branch. Now, what does the branch mean? Well, if you read the chapter, the right before Isaiah 11.1, 1, the end of Isaiah 10, God talks about the fact that he's going to cut off the branches of, of the nations, right? And so um, all the way from chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying that Israel will be cut off. And then Jesus gives a little hint as to what this means when he says, and uh, he says this in a couple of different places. He says, the axe is laid at the, at the root of the tree, and anyone who doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and cast into the fire. And this is, these are the, prof, the judgments that were pronounced by Isaiah. And so the, the likeness is made that Isaiah is like, or sorry, Israel is like a tree that would be cut down. And then here in Isaiah 11, chapter 1, the prophecy is that a, there will grow out this little tender shoot or this, this branch will grow out of the stump of this tree. So even though the, the whole tree has been cut down, Israel has been cut down, a new branch is going to grow out. And then, and then the whole chapter of Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about what this branch would accomplish and how it would be greater than the original tree. So that is, uh, even though it's not very commonly, I, well, let, let me put it this way, there is no footnote in our scriptures that point back to Isaiah 11.1. 1. You have to do a little bit of research to make that parallel because um, it's not 100% accepted that that's what it is. It's a, little, it's a little more out there. But it's a powerful message that the, when Jesus is called the branch, now it's not controversial that the Messiah is the branch, right? And so what is controversial is, is, the, is the name of the city of Nazareth or the little village of Nazareth, is that a fulfillment of that prophecy? And I believe it is. Uh, and also in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender reed. Um, now this is... Another way of saying a shoot, the, the root is different. It's not netzer, the, the Hebrew word meaning branch that is used in Nazareth. But the again, we have the suffering servant described as somebody who's going to grow up as a tender branch. So that's another fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 10 at the end, the high ones are going to be hewn down.
In Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. So those are all ways in which uh, it, Jesus is the place where he's raised is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew 4, 15, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. And that is, Matthew describes that as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And Isaiah is talking about the lands, particu uh, particular lands within Israel that surround the Galilee region. And these lands are still identifiable in Jesus' day. And so when Jesus goes to teach in Galilee, Matthew says, and thus it is fulfilled that these people in the, in the tribal lands of Zebulon and others would be sitting in darkness and see a great light. Matthew saw this as a, the fact that Jesus chose to teach in the Galilee region as a fulfillment of this scripture. In Matthew 8, 17, he says that uh, Jesus taking upon, beginning his ministry by healing is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 4, where he took upon him our infirmities and our diseases. In Matthew 12, verse 18, verses 18 through 21, uh, now this, this is an important fulfillment. When Jesus tells people, I've healed you, but please don't talk about it. Right? Don't don't tell any man. Jesus says this many times in his ministry. Matthew describes this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 3, where Isaiah says, "Behold, my servant, uh, in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him." In ver in uh, Isaiah 42 verse 2, he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. So Matthew describes the the fact that Jesus doesn't want his healing to be widely known as a, as a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Going a little farther in Matthew, chapter 21, verse 5, the triumphal entry. Uh, this is an obvious fulfillment, and it was very deliberate fulfillment on the part of Jesus, of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. It describes that he rides in on a donkey. Now, what are the scriptures that specifically talk about Jesus having to suffer? Because those are the those are the scriptures that Jesus is referring to. You know, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? In other words, it is not only presaged in the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah, but that the Messiah would die. So some of these scriptures are just tying Jesus to the Messiah prophecies, and some of them actually foretell that Jesus would die. The most obvious, the most clear uh, along these lines is the entire chapter of Isaiah 53, and that includes the end of Isaiah 52. So this, this servant, if you remember, John has tied together in his gospel, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, John quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, the vision of God on his throne, and in the next breath, John quotes from Isaiah 52 and 53, so God is high and exalted on his throne, and the suffering servant of God is high and exalted as well. So John has tied together this the Messiah who will suffer, the suffering servant, and God himself. John does this very deliberately to show that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is the God of Israel and that he would suffer. So those two things are, are given in parallels by John tying together with the phrase high and exalted. And, and Isaiah tied them together as well. This phrase, as I mentioned at the time, this phrase only occurs twice 
in the entire Old Testament, high and exalted describes God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, and it describes the suffering servant at the end of Isaiah 52. And so this is John saying that God himself is this suffering servant. And then the, the path the suffering servant takes, the events that, that happen to this suffering servant, makes it plain that this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And the, the phrase in there that most clearly presages his death is when it says he is cut off from the land of the living. Now, depending on how that is translated, it becomes more or less clear. You and I would not say, in order to describe somebody's death, we wouldn't say he was cut off from the land of the living. So there are translations where it says just flat out, he, he would be killed. And that is what that means. So it is very clearly a prophecy of the death of the servant of, of God. And as John is, seems to be implying by his tying together of these two chapters, it's it's a prophecy of the death of God himself, that God would come down, as Nephi described in his vision of the condescension of, of God, that God himself would come down, be born among man, and then be killed. So in Isaiah 53, we have the most clear testimony of Jesus Christ. And I, and I, uh, I think we'll read a, a large part of that chapter in, in a few minutes, but that is the most commonly cited in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, among the disciples of Jesus for the testimony of why he would have to suffer. Now, uh, when, when he began his ministry, Jesus got up in front of the, the synagogue in his home village of Nazareth, and he said, the Lord hath anointed me, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It just so happened that the, this rotating reading that would occur in the books of the prophets every week in synagogue This week, it was Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus wrote this, I have been called, I have been sent forth to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the opening opening of prison to the prisoner and the restoring of sight to the blind. And Jesus reads this scripture in Isaiah 61 and recounted in uh, Luke chapter 4. And then he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So not only has Christ quoted Isaiah, but he has specifically said, this particular chapter of Isaiah applies to me. So this is Jesus teaching us, not just his disciples, but teaching us one of the scriptures that that talks about his mission and that has specifically prophesied of his life. Now, a lot of the scriptures that talk about Jesus' suffering come from the Psalms. And if you think about it, the reason is clear. It's because Many of the Psalms were written by David after he was so sad and after his, his David lived a life of a lot of suffering. And um, it is clear from the curse that was directed at David from the prophet Nathan that this is because of his iniquity, right? His choice to commit adultery and then murder. Then, uh, God pronounced judgment on him, and the sword would never depart from his house. And so David was attacked by his sons, most notably Absalom. He had to he had warfare and strife and drama throughout his life. And uh, so, in uh, throughout the book of the Psalms, David is is lamenting the pain that he's going through. But so many of the 
the descriptions of David's pain apply to Jesus Christ as well. And uh, I, wish, I wish we had more time to talk about the book of Psalms, the powerful book of Psalms. But in John 15, some of these are what you might call judgment calls because there's more than one psalm, there's more than one reference to the Old Testament that could possibly satisfy the scripture. It doesn't say in the book of John, and uh, thus it was thus it was fulfilled from X chapter in the book of Psalms or, or the, you know, the 23rd Psalm, it doesn't say that. It just says, thus it was fulfilled, thus scripture, and you have to choose which scripture it applies to. And so some of these are judgment calls, especially the ones in Psalms, but not all of them. Some of them are extremely clear. Um, but this one, so John chapter 15, verse 25, I believe he's quoting uh, Psalm 109, verse 3. So he says, they, they attacked me without a cause. And in, in Psalm 109, it's basically talking about a man betrayed by his friends, and in return for love, they surround me with hate, and without a cause, they attacked me. And so Jesus says, you know, thus, thus the scripture fulfilled, I was hated without a cause. I believe the most uh, appropriate, case, appropriate reference for this is Psalm 109, verse 3. Uh, in Mark chapter 15, verse 28, again quotes Isaiah 53. Uh, in this case, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. So when Jesus is nailed on a cross between two thieves, that's when Mark says this, this scripture from Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. John chapter 12, verse 38. So remember that after Jesus' triumphal entry, he's preaching and nobody, nobody really believes that Jesus is who he says he is, even his own disciples. And John says this is a fulfillment of the first part of Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So in other words, nobody will believe in Jesus, and this was foretold by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verse 1. So, so many of these uh, are, they're again tying the Messiah, or Jesus himself, to the nation of Israel. The other tie that is made is Messiah is Jehovah. So Isaiah 53 uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 43, verse 15. Isaiah, speaking with the, with the voice of God, says, I am Jehovah, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And so the fact that Jehovah calls himself the King of Israel is, the, is, a, is a very powerful testimony as Jesus also calls himself the King of Israel, right? And the Messiah is foretold that he would be the the king of Israel as well. Like David was the king of Israel, Solomon was the king of Israel, but then centuries later, Jehovah describes himself this same way. I am your holy one, your creator of Israel, your king. And then in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, again quoted in Matthew 21, he says to uh, Israel, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So, that could be interpreted, you know, your Messiah is coming unto you. But in Isaiah 43, 15, it can also be interpreted, behold, your God is, com- is coming unto you, right? One and the same thing. So this is Isaiah explicitly tying together the prophecies of the Messiah. He's saying that when the Messiah comes, it will be God coming as well. Uh, nobody really believed that, right? Nobody 
is willing to take that verse and and follow its implication through to the end, which is that when when the Messiah comes to Israel, he will be their God. In John, when he's talking about the crucifixion, when Jesus says, I'm thirsty, John says, thus it was fulfilled in the scripture, I thirst. Now, there are a few psalms that talk about thirsting. One is Psalm 2215, my, stung, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Another is Psalm 6921, they give him gall and vinegar to poison his drink, right, at when he thirsts. And Jesus was given gall and vinegar on the cross. Now, uh, it also John also says in 1936 that not a bone of his would be broken. And this is, and, and John says, thus is the scripture fulfilled, not a bone of his would be broken. But um, there are some scriptures in the, in the Old Testament that talk about the, not a bone of the, the paschal lamb, this, this lamb that would be slain and eaten on the Passover would be broken. Exodus 12, 46 talks about the Passover lamb. Number, that's the original Passover lamb. And then Numbers, 12, Numbers 9, verse 12 talks about the commemorative Paschal lamb that would be eaten every year. In each case, not a bone of this lamb would be broken. But then in Psalm 34, 20, this, now this is interesting because it does presage the suffering of Christ. Like a lot of these verses, they, they tie Jesus to the prophecies of the Messiah, but they don't necessarily presage the suffering of Christ. And again, Christ was talking specifically, he was saying to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he was saying, you could, you could have known all along, if you'd understood the scriptures, you could have known that Christ would suffer and die. Not only that Jesus was Christ, but that the Messiah, the Christ, was destined to suffer and die at the end of his ministry. So Psalm 3420, the, the, the Lord will protect his righteous and not one of his bones shall be broken. So I encourage you to read that. Now I think we're going we're gonna to spend a little time uh, reading the, oh, and one more, one more scripture I'll, I'll talk about, and then we'll go into the book of Acts. So John 13, 18, he who I'm, whom I have trusted and eaten bread with has lifted up his heel against me, right? Jesus talks about, or John talks about how that scripture would be fulfilled. And Jesus even mentions that he's fulfilling scripture, and that's Psalm 41, 9. So then the, then the disciples go out into all the world, and uh, the very book of Acts begins with Luke testifying that he's going to use the scriptures. So the disciples go out into the world speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and that's because they've been given this understanding into the scriptures by Jesus himself. And so... One of the first events in the book of Acts is the day of Pentecost when this, the Holy Ghost comes upon Peter and everyone he's teaching to. And the people he's teaching to are those Jews which were in the crowd calling for Barabbas to re be released instead of Jesus. And he's saying, you've crucified Jesus. You've crucified your own God. And they are all pricked in the heart. 3,000 of them were converted. The, the scripture is so powerful. And uh, in in uh, so, and so this is in Acts chapter two, towards the end, twenty-five through thirty-six, you might say. But he's quoting Psalm. Peter is quoting Psalm sixteen eight through eleven. Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, neither shalt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So the holy one, 
when you won't leave my soul in hell, it means I'm already dead, right? Your holy one will not see corruption means he's dead, but his body won't rot. And so Peter is saying this is a fulfillment of this, of this psalm, Psalm 16, that Jesus would be raised from the dead so early after his death. And obviously that's true. This is an inspired testimony by the, the prophet of God. And he's saying God himself prophesied that Jesus would die. So this is, and this is just a few days after Jesus told them about, his, uh, about the scriptures that presaged his death. So I think we can be almost absolutely certain that Jesus would have taught about Psalm 16 to his disciples when he said, look, there are scriptures that talk about me having to suffer. And one of them is that, that, that uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So that's a powerful testimony there. Also, uh, in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, we have, we have plenty of testimonies of the apostles that echo the testimony that Jesus gave, which was the scriptures talk about my suffering. Now, they don't necessarily say which scriptures, but they echo this message of Jesus that it is plain from the Old Testament that God should suffer, that the Messiah should suffer and die. And so Acts uh, 3 verse 18 is another is another example of this testimony that God showed by the mouth of his prophets that Christ should suffer. And one example of this, now if, if you remember, we talked about Jesus being the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. And so uh, in Acts 4 verse 11, it's again talked about Jesus would be the, the stone set at naught by the builders. So this is from Psalms as well. So the, the, the 118th Psalm, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the chief cornerstone or the head of the corner. Uh, this is a prophecy of the suffering and death of Jesus because what does it mean to reject a stone if you're the builder, right? And then what does it mean to become the chief cornerstone? So this is a prophecy of Jesus dying and being resurrected. And again, uh, in chapter 4, uh, of Acts, verses 25 through 28. Luke talks about the kings of the earth rise up. Um, why did the heathen rage, and why did the people imagine vain, vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Or as uh, Luke says it, or as Peter says it in Acts, against his Christ. So this is, this is Luke testifying that in the second psalm, Psalms 2-2, that uh, this is a prophecy about all of the, the governments of the world rising up against Christ. And then he says, surely they did that because the chief priests and the rulers and also Pilate and the rulers. So Rome and Judah together have risen up and all of the people against God and against his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, Jesus. So uh, read Psalm 2, verse 2. That's pretty amazing. Uh prophecy there. So, um, again, another testimony in, uh, Acts verse, in Acts chapter 13, Paul talks again about Psalm 2. He talks about Isaiah 55. He talks about Psalm 16. He's talking about all of these um, ways in which, and then he begins his, his, his sermon in Antioch, Paul does, in 
in Acts 13, he begins it by saying the Jews didn't understand the scriptures which spoke of him, so they fulfilled these scriptures by slaying him. So this is Paul saying, and Paul had, may have heard what these scriptures were when in his interactions with the other disciples, right? So he may have heard secondhand the scriptures that Jesus taught about, but he's making specific reference here. I'm about to tell you the scriptures that presage the suffering and death of the Messiah. And he again makes reference to Psalm 2, but he talks about Isaiah 55 verse 3. He talks about Psalm 16, which we mentioned, that talks about how um, the Holy One will not seek corruption. So that's a pretty good, another, that's a second witness that that is one of those important verses. Uh, When Stephen is martyred, and this is in Acts chapter 7, he gives an entire history of Abraham, of, the, of Israel. Abraham through Moses, and then again uh, through Solomon. He continues a little bit later. This is Stephen's testimony that Jesus is a parallel of Israel. And all through Israel's history, basically what he's saying is, all through Israel's history, your fathers have not paid attention to the prophets. Which of the prophets, in verse uh, 52 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And so, of course, you're going to do this to Jesus Christ as well. And this is such a powerful testimony as he's talking about the entire history of Israel that he has a vision of God with Christ on his right hand. And this is a, uh, this is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 because he, sees, I, he says, I see God on his throne and I see the Son of Man at his right hand. So he's talking about seeing this this judgment of the beasts that Daniel talked about that is presaged in Daniel 7. And then what do they do? They trample him exactly as the beast does in Daniel 7. It's quite a powerful uh, chapter when you see it in that context. And we'll talk about that in our lesson. So that's enough scriptures. Uh, if Congratulations if you made it this far. I'm going to tie it all together here. But... Um, I just wanted to talk about what I think. I wanted to give an exhaustive list of what I think the the disciples might have heard from Jesus because, because this is Jesus testifying of himself, because this is Jesus saying, here is my mission, and you could have known this, and you, and you can still know it, and you have always known it. And it was more, as I mentioned earlier, it was more powerful than him appearing to them in the flesh and showing them the marks in his hands. It, because it was something he couldn't duplicate. The, the lifelong learning that they had in the scriptures, he was saying, you've been learning about me all along. And that's why I think he chose to do it that way. Number one, because the spirit, when it talks to our hearts, it's more powerful than anything we see with our eyes. But number two, when, when we are given an understanding to something we already knew, it is a more powerful experience than having a new understanding given to us at that moment. And I think that's why Jesus chose to, to show them from the scriptures they already knew. He chose to show them about his mission and his life and his suffering and the fact that all along they've been learning that he would die. So when they were mourning, when, when they were so despondent and in so much despair over his death, They could have known, they could have been rejoicing, and this is what he was teaching them. You could have been aware of this, and now I'm making you aware that you've always known this. And so I thought, as we talk about this 
Obviously, we don't have the same background in the Old Testament that a Jew of Jesus' time would have had. There's no way we could. I shouldn't say there's no way. Uh, it's, not, it's not very common that someone today would uh, have that understanding and that foundation in the Old Testament. And if you're a Christian, it would be very unlikely that you would have that understanding first in the Old Testament before you had it in the New Testament. So this is Jesus' testimony specifically for Jews, saying, this is how you can be convinced that I am both the Messiah and that it was necessary for me to die. And I will end with one more scriptural reference. And this one I hope you'll follow along with if you have your scriptures in front of you. And it's in Genesis 5, chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. Now I mentioned that the lives of Joseph and Moses are parallels to Christ. But this, so this is from the, the life of Joseph of Egypt. And after Jacob, their father, has died, all of the brothers of Joseph are afraid because they've mistreated Joseph horribly. They sold him into slavery. They're afraid that now that their father's disapproval is Joseph no longer has to worry about that. Now he's going to get his revenge. So they come back, they bury Joseph, they travel to Canaan, bury, or I'm sorry, they travel to Canaan and bury Jacob. Then they all travel back to Egypt where Joseph is second in command and he's proven himself by saving everyone from the famine. There, nobody would stop him from doing anything. And they're worried now he's going to get his revenge. So we're in Genesis chapter 50 and uh, verse 18. His brethren went and fell down before his face and they said, well, let's go back one more verse. Uh, Joseph, Genesis 50 verse 17. Um, this is Jacob telling his sons before he dies. So shall you say to Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. So they're personally asking forgiveness. They sent this little letter to him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Now this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that uh, the dream that Joseph had had that his brethren would bow themselves down before him. And here they are literally doing it. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. And the word, uh, this doesn't really have any particular significance, but the word for good, uh, maybe you've heard mazel tov. The word for good is tov or tov. So, God can take one of the chief messages of the Old Testament, and especially of this story of Joseph, is that God can take what is meant for evil and turn it into tov. As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Now, as Jesus is a type, is an echo of the entire people of Israel, and as Joseph is a type of Christ. So this is a powerful lesson from the Old Testament about the mission of Christ. As ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto to tov. God can take this evil, turn it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So 
Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt, if he hadn't had that happen to him, if a representative of God had not had the wisdom to foresee this famine, maybe the entire nation of Canaan and Egypt would have been wiped out by starvation by this famine that came. The famine was inevitable, but the salvation was not. But because of somebody trying to do evil, the means was provided by which they could all be saved from this inevitable destruction. What a powerful testimony, not only of the necessity that that Christ should suffer and die, but of the mercy of God and his ability to take this inevitable death, not the, not the death of the body, but the second death, this separation from God. We meant God evil when we listened to the natural man. And Christ came that he can, through the grace of God, turn the evil that we meant unto good and save. And, and by doing that, Christ could save much people alive. So here's a very powerful testimony, not only of the mission of Christ, but of the mindset of Christ, that he was willing to suffer and receive the hatred that surrounded him on all sides without a cause and turn it into good and save us alive. And that as we bow ourselves humbly before him, he will lovingly forgive us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.